how do we avoid the judiciary becoming suddenly a super legislator just telling the Congress agency by agency whether it's a thumbs up or thumbs down from our perspective? Hi, and welcome back to Amicus. This is Slate's podcast about the courts and the law and the rule of law and the U.S. Supreme Court. I'm Dahlia Lithwick. I cover these things for Slate. And this past Monday, the 2023 term opened under a kind of weird blur of ethics violations, a very rare Clarence Thomas recusal, and a promise that as the conservative supermajority works through its remaining to-do items— Taking a wrecking ball to the administrative state is absolutely top of the list this year. As somebody pointed out to me earlier this week, protecting the orderly functioning of the administrative state doesn't really sound like a super sexy project when you have Kevin McCarthy and Matt Gates jello wrestling in the House and looming threats to shut down the whole government. But the fact is that the regulatory agencies that comprise 21st century government are, in fact, the reason that we have clean water and have polio vaccines. And it's also the way predatory lenders are successfully regulated. As Elena Kagan put it in her dissent in the EPA Clean Air Act case from two short years ago, the oligarch's effort to end government agencies is always a shell game, quote, Today, one of those broader goals makes itself clear. Prevent agencies from doing important work, even though that is what Congress directed, end quote. On Tuesday morning, the high court heard oral arguments in CFSA versus CFPB, a challenge brought by the Community Financial Services Association, which seeks to block the enforcement of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau's rules designed to protect consumers against abusive payday loans. The challengers, a consortium of surprise, surprise payday lenders, contend that Congress violated the Constitution's Appropriations Clause when it granted the CFPB a portion of the Federal Reserve's operating budget to fund it as opposed to a direct annual appropriation. Furthermore, they argue, if the Bureau's funding structure is deemed unconstitutional, Everything the Bureau has ever done since must also be unconstitutional. Now, a unanimous three-judge panel of the, say it with me, Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals agreed with that assessment. At oral arguments on Tuesday, it appeared that yet again the Fifth Circuit had gone way too far for the court's pragmatic conservatives. Is it like an intelligible principle of, of money spent? I understand the practical realities, and I appreciate them. I mean, I think we're all struggling to figure out then what's, what's the standard that you would use. Congress could change it tomorrow. How do you decide how much is too much or how specific is specific enough? And there's nothing perpetual or permanent or, um, uh, that, about this. Joining us this week is the person who almost single-handedly magicked up the CFPB in the wake of the financial and housing crises, Senator Elizabeth Warren. This is the last big Hail Mary from the payday lenders. This is the one where they say, that agency can't regulate us because the whole thing is just unconstitutional. 
Later on in the show, we are going to talk to ProPublica's Andrea Bernstein about their phenomenal new podcast. They're making it in conjunction with WNYC. It's called We Don't Talk About Leonard, and it goes way deep on the life and times and machinations of Leonard Leo. I'm just curious, though, like you're the guy in the White House, you're responsible for getting this through the Senate, and here's the Judicial Confirmation Network. That was clear to you that this was a group associated with Leo, that he was... Yes, 100%. Leonard, Leonard was the guy. So that's the behind-the-scenes part. Publicly, there's just a glimpse Leo was involved. Judge Roberts did a fine job. Andrea's going to stay with us for our Slate Plus segment to talk about what the what happened in Donald Trump's civil trial this week in New York. There can't be fraud when you've told institutions to do their own work. This case is a fraud and it's a scam. Thank you very much. How did this affect the election? Why is it a scam? Why is it a scam? Slate Plus members have access to bonus conversations and exclusive episodes. They also enjoy all of Slate's network of podcasts ad-free, and they never hit a paywall at Slate.com. These perks could be yours, too, if you join us as a Slate Plus subscriber. So do head to Slate.com slash Amicus Plus for more information. And to our Slate Plus members, thank you ever so much for supporting the journalism that we do here at Amicus and at Slate Magazine. We quite literally could not do it without you. But first, the CFPB, or Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which has been responsible for forcing giant financial companies to return over $17 billion to consumers since its inception 12 short years ago, was in the crosshairs on Tuesday at the high court. Now, Tuesday seems a lifetime ago, and in my case, it was at least three cities ago because I'm on the road this week. But in one of those cities, Washington, D.C., I caught up with the perfect person to explain why what feels like a very arcane case about terribly technical constitutional language about appropriations is, in fact, one of the landmark appeals of this term. And that person is Senator Elizabeth Warren. Senator Warren was reelected to the U.S. Senate for a second term by the good people of Massachusetts in 2018. She had the idea for the CFPB, although she could not be confirmed to be its head. And for our purposes, this week on Amicus, Senator Warren is also former Leo Gottlieb Professor of Law at Harvard Law School. And we sat down with her in her office in the Senate earlier this week. Senator, it's such a treat to have you on the podcast. Welcome to the Thank show. Thank you very much. It's good to be here with you, Dahlia. I love this kind of stuff. Well, good, because we are going to be a little wonky. I love it. Where I love you it. live and wonky where is I, my love language. Where okay. I <laughs> dip my toe. But I thought maybe just to set the table, can we go all the way back to the financial crash and the payday lending, the genesis of CFPB? Because I think people don't quite remember what payday lenders do and who was affected, and what it is you were trying to fix with Dodd-Frank. Okay, memories are short. So remember the world pre-2008. We had a lot of consumer protection laws, but they were scattered among more than half a dozen different federal agencies, you know, some here, some over there, and for nobody were they the first job. And so for everybody... They were somebody else's job, which means they were largely unenforced or randomly enforced and so on. Now, what happens in a world like that is, let's just face it, the cheating that's 
maybe kind of always out there a little bit, just gets totally out of hand. So credit card companies go from having contracts that are a page and a half long to contracts that are 35 pages long. And I guarantee the additional pages were not to help the customer. And the mortgage industry, which had always been the boring, solid part of consumer lending, just skyrockets with, oh my gosh, with subprime mortgages, liars, loans, all kinds of things, where, and always remember, it started with families who already owned their homes. And ultimately, millions of people lose their homes through the the unraveling of that. Payday lenders go from being this tiny little corner of consumer credit to figuring out there is big, big money to be made with people who have jobs, but are barely making it on those jobs, and so need to borrow a little until the end of the month, hence the word payday loan. And what they figured out is a business model that wasn't just about, okay, I'll lend you 200 bucks, you pay me back 50 bucks at a shot, plus a little interest, you know, over eight installments. Nope. They figured out the way to do this is to lend you the 200 bucks and say, but you've got to pay the whole thing in 14 days. And it turns out roughly about 85% can do that. But the 15% that can't have just landed in a net. And what the payday lenders would do is they would say, okay, if you can't pay, then we'll lend you another $25 fee to roll over and we raise your interest rate and we do this and we do that. And then it turns out you end up with these stories and lots of data of people who literally pay for years on that first $200 loan and having paid thousands and thousands of dollars still owe $200. And that's where the big money was to be made. Okay, so that's the stage set. Then what happens? Mortgage market implodes. And here in Washington, everybody looks around and says, we got to change some laws. And they were going to change the laws on non-bank financial institutions, right? Lots of big fancy stuff. But one thing for consumers, and that is we got to make sure this kind of lying and cheating doesn't keep up because it's not only bad for the people who get trapped, it's, it's bad for the whole damned economy. And this is one I actually want to give a shout out here to President Barack Obama who said early, early in this process as president, we are not going to rewrite financial laws without getting something that changes how consumer credit works. So, hence, I'm selling this idea for the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. That gets put into Dodd-Frank, and the idea is gather up all those laws that are out there among all the agency, put it with one agency, give them the expertise, give them the resources, and then, by golly, hold them accountable to make sure that we just kind of have a level playing field in consumer credit. It's not to say banks can't make money. It's not to say that student loan servicers can't make money. It's But you can't make a bucket of money by cheating people, by lying to them, by tricking them and trapping them. And that's basically what has happened. In other words, the CFPB has worked. You pointed out it's returned $17 billion directly to people who are cheated. Right now, it handles 3,000 complaints a day. So if anybody's listening to us and they're bummed over some $15 damn fee that their bank added and they think it's wrong, click on to CFPB.gov. 
you might be able to get it fixed. Somebody's not returning your mortgage down payment of $7,000 really matters here. Click on to cfpb.gov and you've got a much better chance of getting some help. Okay, that's kind of how this worked. And frankly, much of the industry adjusted to it. They, you know, kind of figured out they could make some money, they'd have to switch some things around, but mostly adjusted. But here were the two holdouts. Big financial institutions chafe. They don't like it. They give money to the Chamber of Commerce to keep attacking the agency. I mean, they never will say it overtly under their own names, but don't like this agency and keep hacking away at it. Why? Because it bites into profits. It keeps them from innovating into new ways to cheat people. But the other group that just hated it are the payday lenders because they're the ones First, our first director, Rich Cordry, he starts the regulatory process and starts the studies to begin to expose how right at the heart of this industry is it, just trapping people. That's, that's, that's the heart of this business model. So he tries to put regulations in place, payday lenders sue, they lose, they sue, they lose, they sue, they lose. And this is the last big Hail Mary from the payday lenders. This is the one where they say, that agency can't regulate us because the whole thing is just unconstitutional. And that's how we end up in court yesterday. And, and can you explain, because that's the central issue, is how the CFPB is funded. And it's quite deliberately funded the way it is to insulate it from the sort of annual political circus, right, that is appropriations. Can you just explain, like, this wasn't an accident or an oversight. No. The thing that they're claiming to be unconstitutional is a funding system that's quite deliberate. So, so let's start with banking regulators. First banking regulator, 1863, Office of the Controller of the Currency. And what does that Congress do? Right in the middle of the Civil War, they said, we've got to have a banking regulator, but let's make it independent of the political process, the funding process, so it has what's called independent funding. It's fees and so on. OCC does not go through appropriations. Every single banking regulator since then, in other words, all banking regulators in the history of the United States have all been funded outside the appropriations process. And just to add a little extra twist, and they're not the only ones. Social Security is funded outside the process. Medicare is funded outside the appropriations process. Heck, going back to the 1790s, the postal system was funded outside the appropriations process. So this is not like some new deal that sitting there in 2008 in the wake of this huge crash said, gosh, what could we do that's nobody's ever thought of before? It you picked up the standard tool for all the bank regulators and for work that you really wanted to keep insulated from the year-to-year politics of appropriations. This 
CFPB becomes the like bet noir, the symbolic, like the hill that folks who have a deregulatory project are willing to die on. Yes. And and I would love for you, I mean, you've said it, it, it takes a bite at the banks, the payday lenders hate it, but it's more than that. Oh, it's more this than that. This symbolizes like the Death Star for freedom and liberty. And I would love you, I know this is not your analysis, but I would love if you could kind of reconstruct what it is about the CFPB, which is one of the most sort of successful bureaus as we both have stipulated. What is it that this symbolizes to the folks who are just determined to take it and sort of as an ancillary bonus you down so i think it starts with ronald reagan do you remember ronald reagan's quote what are the nine most terrifying words in the english language i'm here from the government (laughs) i'm here to help that's exactly (laughs) right you know what cfpb is the government and it does help and that's that's exactly the point I think the reason it engenders such fury among these sort of ideological uh, conservatives here is that it's government actually working. And I really want to underscore here, because this is, this is where I see it, to make markets work. I mean, this is the part that's really remarkable. This is not the heavy hand of regulation. This is not the government coming in and substituting its judgment for where the market should go. Instead, the CFPB works on the premise that we want to make sure people really understand what's happening. And let me just say, 35 pages of what used to be called mice type, because only a mouse would be able to read it in a credit card agreement, is not an informed consumer. So it was really sometimes, like in the case of mortgages, they just got them down to where they're really only about four variables. Because you know what? That makes it a whole lot easier to make comparisons. They got the box to make it easier to make comparisons among credit cards so people could be fully informed. And I love this part. Think about the complaint process. If I get cheated by my bank for $15, $150. I can't afford to go to court. Are you kidding? Nobody can. And the market doesn't work in the sense that I know that it happened to a lot of other people. It could be happening to you. It could be happening to other people. But we don't sit around and talk about the charge that was put onto our checking account. But what a complaint hotline does is two things. It both gives the consumer a remedy without having to spend any money at all, and they have made it so friendly, this easy form to fill out, that the minute you send it in, CFPB, in effect, date stamps it, sends it on to the institution you're complaining about, and then the clock starts to run, and the institution either gets this thing settled right away, which often means getting your money back, or it has to answer to the CFPB. And what that does is it also creates a public database, which, by the way, the banks fought like crazy, a public database so you can go check. Oh, I'm thinking about opening a checking account. I do business right now with Chase. Maybe I could take a look and see how does Wells treat its customers, at least as best we can see from the complaints, and so on. In other words, more useful information in the marketplace more reporters who will actually analyze the data and write about it. And CFPB uses it for what's called heat mapping 
to see where the problems are cropping up. And it's additional information that comes straight from the families who are affected to say, wait, here's what went wrong for me. And CFPB can collect that and say, oh, we've got a real problem here. We need to start investigating. In other words, this is to say marketplaces need a cop on the beat, a cop on the beat to make sure the rules are enforced. I used to teach contract law, and we used to talk about why you have to have court enforcement on those contracts. Otherwise, nothing works, and you don't get the value of gains from trade. What you get is the, the biggest, richest in the marketplace just takes from everybody else. CFPB is a way in consumer credit, all these different devices, to keep people from being cheated so that those creditors who are offering a little better product at a little better price with a little better service actually have a chance to compete in that marketplace. And that just chaps some of these ideologues who want to say government is always bad. They cannot get over the fact CFPB works. I love what you're saying, because what you're saying is that the overarching complaint, which is these are these dead eyed bureaucrats, you know, in the nanny state who are messing with your life, you know, and unaccountable. What you're saying is actually it's rendering the government visible and transparent and functional. These aren't, you know, dead eyed bureaucrats who are taking away your rights and liberties and privileges. They're just helping you navigate a system that is absolutely impenetrable otherwise. Bingo. That indeed, I would I would add to it by saying they're actually enhancing your liberty, your freedom, because they're empowering the consumer to stand on effectively an equal footing with Chase and Wells, and to say, I'm going to look at your products, and I'm going to figure out which one's best for me, and then that's where I'm going to go. That's the CFPB's job. Let's talk a little bit about the oral argument that happened on Tuesday morning. I think in some sense it was a surprise to those of us who were expecting those nanny states, liberty, liberty, liberty arguments. It was not that. It felt as though I think overwhelmingly the proposition that was being put forth by Noel Francisco, who was representing the payday lenders, was that there was no limiting principle on this thing that he was saying renders the entire CFPB unconstitutional and all its prior actions also unenforceable. There's no limiting principle there. Was your sense based on coming out of that argument, I'm not not asking you to prognosticate, we know better than that on this show, but that that kind of extreme anti-government argument was not flying with the bulk of the court? Well, as you say, we, we never know for sure what's happening. But the argument that you and I started with, or the, the observation, that sauce for the CFPB is sauce for the Fed, is sauce for the FDIC, is sauce for the OCC, and we could keep going through, seemed to be in the air in the Supreme Court, that they were asking the question, well, if the CFPB can't do this, then what about all the others that are not funded through the appropriations process? I mean, that is the obvious question. Plus, they were looking at how much chaos this would cause. So, as you rightly point out, when the payday lender's lawyer is saying, oh, you know, throw it all out, Remember, 
one of the briefs that was filed, amicus briefs, is from the mortgage bankers and the home builders who said, whoa, whoa, whoa. Not the hippies on the, on the amicus beat. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, exactly. They're saying, you know what? The CFPB actually gives us pretty clear rules we can all live with, and they're helping the mortgage market work. If you come back and overturn that retroactively, holy guacamole, and if you just unravel it even going forward, you could crash our entire industry. So it's the, it's the, there were no limiting principles in terms of all of the regulators and other government activities this could apply to, and a really scary version of, you start turning this stuff upside down, you hurt individual consumers, you hurt the economy overall, and you could destroy complete industries in this country. Senator, the other thing that I really clocked is the voices of Elena Kagan, Sonia Sotomayor, Amy Coney Barrett, and Katanji Brown-Jackson all doing the thing that I hear you say in my ears all the time, which is, I'm kind of a wonk, but I'm going to try to explain to you why government is not the enemy. And there were just a set of really interesting iterations of that. And I wonder, it's just interesting when the court, and this I know Justice Kagan has been talking for years and years about we can have no government if this deregulatory project is just greenlit all the way down. Is there a sense that the court is doing a, an adequate job of messaging, or at least, you know, the liberals on the court or the progressives, or I want to say the women on the court, of messaging this thing that has been your life project, which is to explain to people that not Withstanding everything you've heard from I'm here for the government and I'm here to help. Notwithstanding all that, the government actually has to be the way that a society determines what water to drink and how we breathe and how we get vaccines. Exactly. In fact, I still remember when I was fighting to try to get the agency, I still remember going on some, I think it was some television probably being interviewed. This guy said, yes, but I hate government. I said, really? I said, so you don't take prescription pills, right, that are just little white pills without doing your own independent chemical analysis of them, right? You don't fly on airplanes, of course, because you wouldn't rely on somebody to give the information to the pilot to land the plane. And I just kept going through these essential government functions. And of course, you know, a person was like, well, not that. Well, of course, I want that, and I want that, and I want that. I think there's a a move afoot here that, let's be really wonky for a minute. It's about government, but there's, at the same time, there's an underlying constitutional question that I'm wrestling with on this. And that is, we think of the three parts of government. You think of the legislative branch. Man, we get to do all kinds of stuff. We can think up new laws and we can repeal laws, right? And But every two years or every six years, we all get hauled back in front of the voters. And the voters say, yeah, I like that, or no, I don't like that. The president and all the people that the president is able to appoint get to do an incredible number of things to keep our government functioning. But at the end of every four years, you pull that president back. And in fact, that one is even limited, can only do it twice. But look over at the Supreme Court. Lifetime appointment, everybody's been talking about what that means. And I've always thought of it as, 
they get lifetime appointment, but they got to look at the world through a straw. They only can do a case in controversy. They can only do right rightness. They've got to have federal question or constitutional question, right? These very, very constrained. And the underlying part of that is that Supreme Court is not supposed to substitute its judgment for that of Congress. It is Congress's job to decide how we want to play out fill in your blank, Social Security, consumer credit, whatever part of it that we're working on until we hit a particular constitutional barrier. I think what we've seen in the last couple of years, you've triggered this in my mind because you mentioned Justice Kagan in particular, getting more and more concerned about a Supreme Court that in effect is saying, well, it's not how I would have done it. I think it would be better if... No one canceled student loan debt. I think it would be better if the head of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau could be fired by the president. And as I pick those two, Justice Kagan and her dissent in both of those cases says, in effect, yeah, you may think that's right. And shoot, you may be right in some abstract sense, but that's not your job. Your job is a whole lot narrower than that. Your job is to say, if this is how Congress did it, is there any reason to believe there's a part of the Constitution that clearly prohibits what Congress has tried to do here? And I think that's going to be the heart of the issue on what happens with our agencies. We know Chevron Doctrine is coming up later this year, but it's why the CFPB case is so important. It's so important, not just for homeowners and not just for people who who get caught by payday lenders. It's important for everybody who thinks about whether our agencies, which, which is the way we get this kind of flexibility and we can actually develop expertise in the Department of Education, in the CFPB, in the EPA, whether or not these agencies can continue to function in a meaningful way, or whether part of this, as Justice Kagan talks about this, this trying to shrink what government is truly brings government to its knees so that we can't function as a nation. Senator Warren, I only have one last question, and it's going to seem very meta, but we can pivot from wonky to meta. Um, And I think it's this. It feels to me that you are making a kind of closing argument for democracy itself, right? I mean, I think we are sitting here on Capitol Hill amidst threats of a shutdown, and uh, I don't even know what to describe what the Speaker of the House contest is beyond circus monkeys. And you are making an argument for functioning government. My sense is the one institution that is blinking in the face of bringing government to its knees is the Supreme Court itself. And whether it's Moore v. Harper last year, the independent state legislature theory, or the Voting Rights Act last year, right, um, Allen versus Milligan, I sense that even though we have a conservative supermajority on the court, the court is pulling back from this kind of MAGA wild, burn it all down zeitgeist. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe that's wish casting. 
I wonder if you think that's the court blinking or the American public sort of pushing from below saying, you know, we've given it some thought and resolving this by setting it all on fire doesn't work for us. Is this coming from the court or is this coming from an American public that it turns out kind of likes democracy? So I so hope you are right. Because remember, there's also a lot of evidence that goes the other way. This is also the court that said, yes, we will follow precedent and then turns around and dumps Roe versus Wade and um, and has destroyed the lives of people who needed access to health care and can't get it now. Um, and on and on uh, through voting, democracy, every part of this. Yes, I am very worried about democracy in our country, and I am very worried about the Supreme Court. I, I love your optimism that they're headed in a good direction, and all I keep thinking as you're saying this is, your mouth to God's ears, your mouth to God's ears, please. Uh, let's get a court that stays within its boundaries and really only does the part the court was designed to do and and largely did for about 240 years. Um, but I'm not sure. And I sit here in a Congress where I read headline after headline that says Congress is dysfunctional. And I just want to tear my hair out. I'm like, no, we have a handful of Trump loyalists in the House that are determined to burn this place down, and a Republican Party that is enabling them. Don't tell me about Congress. Hold those Republicans accountable. Get them out of elected government. And let us do the work that needs to be done just to keep this government going and to keep this nation going. You know, what is the function of government other than to protect our people, and to make sure that we build opportunity together, the kind you can't build by yourself, right? You can't build a country if you say, everybody build a road if you feel like it, right? Nobody's going to build a road then. We have to make investments together. And we got to watch out for people who would dump bad stuff in our rivers. That's why we have an EPA. And we got to watch out for the fact that not everybody has the money to save for their retirements. And that's why we put Social Security in place. And we got to watch out for credit contracts that were just designed to lie and cheat and steal. Those are legitimate functions of government that make us all richer, make us all safer, make us all more able to build some security going forward. I am so worried that the combination of extremists on the Supreme Court and extremists in the Congress are going to bring that government down where it cannot do those things. And here's, here's, my, here's where that heads. That's not just bad for poor people, which they may not care about. That's not just bad for middle-class people, which they may not care about. It's bad for all of us. It is bad for everybody who loves this, the opportunities that we try to build together. So, yeah, I do get 
a little wound up on the meta part of this because as a nation, this is the moment we have to decide how much does this democracy really and truly matter to us. I never in a zillion years thought I'd end up in elected office. But to end up here now at a time when democracy's on the line, I give this fight everything I've got. Senator Elizabeth Warren from the great state of Massachusetts. I don't fangirl that often on this show, but I'm doing it now. You just can't hear it in my voice. But thank you so much for all the work you do to make the sort of incredibly abstract idea of the rule of law visible and legible to the American people. Thanks for being here. Oh, it's so good to be here with you. And let's get the word out. For the second half of our show, we wanted to explore the wonderful wine soak world of Leonard Leo, who is, in fact, the real-life Willy Wonka of the conservative legal movement, making future justices out of jujubes and jelly beans and doctrine out of dipping dots. A couple billion dollars will help do that for a guy. Andrea Bernstein of ProPublica is co-creator in conjunction with WNYC's On the Media of a brand new podcast series called We Don't Talk About Leonard. Episode two dropped this past Friday, and I wanted to have Andrea on to talk about just some of the stuff that they found out in their incredible reporting for the series. Now, look, I'm fairly steeped in this material, but some of it was news to me. Quite a lot of it was news to me. And Slate Plus members, Andrea is going to stick around with us to answer some questions about this week in court in New York with Donald Trump. By the time I caught up with Andrea, I was in city number four, and Andrea was between Trump court acrobatics on the one hand and Leonard Leo investigations on the other. So it's a treat to have you on the show to talk about your show. Thank you so much, Dalian. And what an honor it is to tell you something you don't know because I thought you knew everything <laughs> seriously about the courts. Well, can you talk a little bit about the genesis of this podcast and how it is you made it? And as you note, it's called what it's called because nobody wanted to talk to you about Leonard Leo because everybody's terrified of what happens to their funding if they do. So can you just sort of walk us through the project and the goal? Sure. So we, so Ilya Meritz, uh, who is one of the other people working on this project, and I joined the ProPublica Democracy team about a year ago. And we were examining different ways that democracy was being stressed. Ilya and I did a podcast called Trump Inc. And we did another podcast about the insurrection called Will Be Wild. So this has been sort of a theme of ours. What are the ways that democracy is being pushed right up into the edge? And it became clear to us that one of the really hidden ways this is happening is through the weakening and politicization of the judiciary. And the person at the center of this, it was becoming clearer and clearer, was Leonard Leo. Our colleague, Andy Kroll, had published a story a little over a year ago about the infamous $1.6 billion contribution to the Marble Freedom Trust, which Leo controls, at the time the largest dark money contribution in the history of the United States. 
And it really piqued our interest. What is he going to do with all this money? What does he want to do now? I mean, he'd had this huge success being involved in the selection of the three Trump Supreme Court justices, having worked on Scalia and Alito and Thomas as well. All six of them, in some way, owed their confirmation to Leonard Leo. So as we looked at this fact pen, we thought this is somebody that nobody understands. And as a matter of fact, <laughs> when we were doing a podcast about the insurrection, I'd be like, oh, I'm doing a podcast about January 6th. And everybody would be like, oh, okay, we know what that is. And then we would say, we're doing a podcast about Leonard Leo. People would say, who? Huh. And then we would say the Supreme Court guy, the Trump list. And they would say, oh, yeah, yeah, that guy. And that is the extent to which sort of the wider world, and I'm talking about smart people, journalists, judges, political operatives, their connection with Leo was glancing. And it became clear to us that here is somebody who is a Robert Moses-like power broker. He has built an entire infrastructure in the U.S. judiciary going back decades, and very few people in this country even know about it. And we decided that a podcast was a really good way to tell this story, to really break it down and try to tell it in a way that is not confusing. And, you know, just to add to that, one of the things that you know about Leonard Leo, he's got all these networks, he's got all these different nonprofits that he's associated with. They give money to each other. They give money to other nonprofits that have shared goals. And it becomes a story that resists telling because by the time you've explained the whole network, you're confused and everybody else is confused and the story stops there. And our goal was to cut through that with We Don't Talk About Leonard. Andrea, whenever we do shows about Leonard Leo, I always start with this funny precatory observation, which is there's this sort of front stage backstage problem, which is they say things about themselves and to themselves about what they're doing, and they're very proud of it. And then when you point that out, they say, oh, no, that never happened, or, you know, this isn't true, or you're a crazy stringboard, you know, homeland person. So one of the things I think is really interesting is that you have managed, even though you can't find a lot of folks willing to talk to you on the record, you certainly managed to kind of <laughs> capture them in their own natural habitat, you know, saying the things and doing the things often, you know, on other people's podcasts, that when we say, oh, this is happening, we sound nutty, right? And the opening of the first episode from last week is this just rather amazing, Dobbs is about to come down, there's a soiree with Secret Service and federal judges and other fancy people at Leonard Leo's palatial estate in Maine, and, you know, there's whiskey tasting and cheese plates, and this is all, like, the kind of stuff that when we say this happens, they say, no, it doesn't, or it's just friends hanging out. So I'm really interested in how you chose to surf this kind of stuff that they say amongst themselves and stuff they say that never happened, you're making stuff up. Well, this was an extraordinary scene, and, and Leo has moved to uh, Northeast Harbor, Maine, which is sort of essentially adjacent or part of Bar Harbor. And he has moved to an 11-bedroom mansion that is right on the coast. And one of the interesting things about it is the neighbors can walk right by his front gate, or they can go out onto this dock 
uh, which is a you know a, it's not a public sailing club, but it's a it's a sailing club. A lot of people are members, and many locals are members, and they can see what's going on. So he's you know he didn't choose to you know get a ranch in Wyoming. He's in a house in Bar Harbor, and a lot of the neighbors saw this party in June of 2022. And they saw the Coast Guard with engines running, people with guns, uh, security at the event, and it felt very unusual. And it took us a very long time to get confirmation from the U.S. Marshal Service, to get confirmation from the Coast Guard that they had been protecting event this event. And it took a lot of reporting to understand it. And, and finally, through, you know, real shoe leather, leather reporting, freedom of information requests, we were able to get uh, the names of the people who were at this event. And it was three circuit court judges. So, you know, and your listeners know, we're talking just one level down from the U.S. Supreme Court. Some of the most controversial judges in the country, federal judges, state judges, at this dinner party, which was part of a colloquium that is offered by the Scalia School of Law at George Mason University, which offers many, many, many trainings for uh, conservative justices. Sometimes justices who are not conservative go, but by and large, the attendees are conservative justices. And they have this event, and it's coming at the end of this Supreme Court term that did so much to achieve Leonard Leo's goals. I mean, without question, our reporting shows overturning Roe v. Wade was one of the animating principles of Leo's life since high school. And they are having this celebratory event. And it just felt to us, here is exactly what we have been reporting on, that it's not just the U.S. Supreme Court. It's that Leonard Leo has been creating a pipeline where he has personally concerned himself with who serves on state Supreme Courts, who becomes a state attorney general. And it's not just that he wants judges who agree with his thinking. He wants specific judges. And this is something we lay out in episode one, where he, in um, about 15 years ago, gets personally involved in the selection of a Supreme Court justice in Missouri. And he wants to change the whole way the judges are selected because conservatives are feeling at this moment that the system that they have, the Missouri plan, which is what a lot of states use, it's a nonpartisan way of selecting judges or it's designed to take politics out of the system. Impossible, I know, but it's designed to sort of try to put up some guardrails. Leo has a strategy and other conservatives have a strategy from our reporting of trying to uh, reject a justice in Missouri and then change the whole way judges are selected in Missouri and then change it hopefully everywhere else in the country. And we find these emails from Leo in which he threatens the sitting governor with the, quote, fury of the conservative base if he picks a judge that Leo doesn't like, who is a Republican appointee but is not the specific kind of conservative Republican that Leo wants to see on courts. 
Yeah, I'm going to ask you to tell that story in a a little bit more detail, but I really want to note that, you know, the Federalist Society holds itself out as first and foremost a debate society and, you know, as a place for beleaguered conservatives to, you know, hang out together and, and not feel oppressed by liberal elites. But as you note, He's been crafting with all these different kind of shell companies that, you know, work out of the same buildings and are next door to each other and donate money and then donate money again. Uh, this whole kind of massive juggernaut that is intended to and has succeeded in seating Supreme Court justices. But one of the points that you just made, and I want you to make it again, is that it's not limited to the district courts or the circuit courts or the U.S. Supreme Court. This is an effort that has been going on for years to also seed state Supreme Courts with Federalist Society-approved justices. And you've just kind of hinted at it, but pull out a little bit the story of what the Missouri plan did and what it is that Leo did. This is not yesterday. This has been going on for a long time to make sure that the justice he wanted would be seated at the Missouri Supreme Court. Right. So so I'll back up a little bit also into the reporting on this, because one of the things I learned early on in, in our research was that the Judicial Crisis Network also known as the Judicial Confirmation Network, now known as the Concord Fund, which is a dark money group that is now basically entirely funded by Leo, but started out launched by Leo and and funded by his allies. And they had spent money on this group. Sometimes it's called Better Courts Missouri. Sometimes it's called Missourians for Better Courts. But in any event, the goal of this group was to change the Missouri plan. The Missouri plan has been in place since 1940, and it was put in following a political scandal. And the idea was they were going to limit partisanship by having a panel that would be lawyers, that would be the chief justice, and also some gubernatorial appointees, rather than just a political appointee. It started in Missouri, and it's been adopted by dozens of other states. So, for example, if you go to Florida, Florida will say, we have the Missouri plan. The Missouri plan is sort of the iconic name for it. And what Leo and a group of conservatives wanted to do was to get rid of it. And what our reporting said is that there was a specific intention, a specific belief that the Missouri plan was a way to just get centrists and left-wing judges in. They could get rid of the plan They could more easily influence the election because all it would mean would be winning one campaign if you had elections versus selections and that conservatives with all of their money could win those campaigns, especially because these are low information races that so few people are watching. There's also the issue with these selections versus elections at the state level is that Voters want rule of law candidates. They want candidates that are going to be tough on crime. And that is something that conservatives can frequently make the case that they are doing. So they have a sort of natural advantage. So that is what Leo and his allies were pushing for. They were pushing for elections, not selections. And they wanted to start in Missouri. And their belief was that if they could sort of throw the state into something akin to a constitutional crisis, the plan would be reformed. So we're in 2007, a vacancy comes up, the panel recommends to the sitting governor, Matt Blunt, 
young rising star in the party. There was talk of him someday being a vice presidential candidate. And he gets three names, two Democrats and one Republican. The Republican is Patricia Breckinridge. So the Democrats are out of the question. But Leo and his allies do not like Breckenridge. And immediately you can see from this chain of emails and records that we got to look at that they start to dig up dirt, that Leo's shop sends negative information about her or information they think is negative to the governor. And they in- get involved in a heavy lobbying campaign to convince Blunt to reject her with the idea that, okay, we're going to change the whole system. But Blunt doesn't go for it. And when Blunt doesn't go for it, Leo starts threatening him and starts saying this comment about Fury, starts saying he will have no national juice anymore, that his career will be over. What happens to Blunt? Some months after this, he announces that he has accomplished everything that he wanted to. He will not be running for a second term, and he has left politics. And one note um, that we should be clear about is Leo is actually unsuccessful, right? That Blunt... Exactly. Yes. He is not successful. Patricia Breckenridge is still, although she is about to retire, but she is still on the state Supreme Court in Missouri. So Leo is not successful. He and the groups associated with him, JCN, keep putting money into Missouri for another three or four years, and they try to upend the plan. They don't succeed. But what we see in Missouri is this very early effort in the state courts is a real lesson for Leo and his allies. And they figure out how to do this correctly. And they start to have a big influence in many other states and are having an influence. And that could have a profound effect on our democracy in the coming years. Andrea, the top half of this particular episode was a conversation with Senator Elizabeth Warren about the conservative legal movement and its efforts to roll back the entirety of the administrative state. And specifically, one of the targets is oh, awesome. to decimate <laughs> utterly what the provisions of Dodd-Frank had put into place and to do that by way of the courts, right? Because the, that's the case that the court uh, heard this first week of the term. Here we are at the second episode, which dropped Friday of We Don't Talk About Leonard. And surprise, surprise, you're connecting the dots of Paul Singer and Justice Samuel Alito and some big salmon and efforts to decimate <laughs> Dodd Frank. And it's just such gorgeous and also despairing making synchronicity here. But I wonder if you can help us understand how this 2008 fishing trip to Alaska reported by your colleagues at ProPublica, that was reported earlier this year. But can you please connect the dots between that, Leonard Leo and his billionaires, and this effort to, in effect, uh, do away with Elizabeth Warren's brainchild? One of the things that we learned in our reporting about Leonard Leo is his animating passion from early on, as mentioned, was abortion and wanting to overturn Roe v. Wade. But one of the things that he started doing along the way was raising money from 
economic conservatives and sort of fusing the economic conservatives and the moral conservatives. And of course, moral conservatives, um, you have a lot of fervor. It's a movement. Uh, it's a different beast from people who are economic conservatives who tend to sort of be sort of, you know, think tank type people, uh, less on the front line. So it's been a very powerful alliance. And one of the things that you can trace, and I've been mentioning this group, the Judicial Confirmation Network, is that Paul Singer has been a donor to the Judicial Confirmation Network, to the Federalist Society. He's been someone that has given a lot of money to Leonard Leo's causes. In 2008, which is just a few months after the whole Missouri disaster for Leo, there's a fishing trip that our colleagues Alex Marjeski, Justin Elliott, and Josh Kaplan wrote about, where Justice Alito goes on a fishing trip with Paul Singer, and they stay at the fishing lodge of Robin Arkley, who is a conservative Californian. He runs a mortgage servicing company. And what our colleagues figured out was that the only thing that connected these three people was Leonard Leo, that Singer and Lolito said they didn't know each other before this trip, and they all go on this fishing trip. And then, as covered by our colleagues, there's a ruling on an Argentinian bank case in which the Supreme Court votes 7-1, Alito included, in favor of Paul Singer's company. Now, Alito has said he didn't realize it was Paul Singer because he wasn't a named party. So what we have learned is that in addition to all of that... Leonard Leo was quietly working with Republican attorneys general, sometimes connecting Paul Singer to their offices to try to get them to figure out other ways to fight this legislation. And as you just pointed out, it's coming up right now. The question of Dodd-Frank and the Consumer Financial Protection Board are going to be before the court this term. And this is something that Leo and his allies have desired. So here we are in a situation where once again, we see the result of playing the long game, that all these decisions that you've discussed and you know we've noted that are coming up in the courts, this term, these economic decisions, this is one of them, regulation of the banking, regula regulation of securities, guns, all of that is coming up this term. And Leo has aligned all of these forces to focus on the courts and to, in some case, introduced interested parties to the members of the high court. Yeah, I think that what you're saying is a little bit the answer to benign debate society and you're a bunch of hysterical journalists, which is Leonard Leo has put a machine in place that kind of tees up the cases that situates people so they can become state attorneys general and solicitors general so that they can bring these cases, often national cases that have nothing to do with the good state of Montana or Nevada. Then after that's been teed up, the justices are kind of loved up and groomed to have the same values that are in the cases. So the idea that this is just a bunch of guys hanging out, you know, tasting wine and being friends, the at every step, 
Leonard Leo is creating the project and steering it in the right direction. What do you tell the people? I'm sure you've encountered many of them, although, as we noted up top, nobody (laughs) will talk to you for fear of pissing off Leonard Leo. But what do you tell the people who say this is just like a paranoid liberal fever dream? So, you know, it's kind of interesting. So, first of all, obviously, a lot of people did talk to us. They just didn't let us use their names. So, for this story, we spoke to current and former judges, current and former justices, current and former political operatives from both parties, former Trump administration appointees. There were quite a few. And, you know, it's interesting because I don't, you know, we didn't get a lot of that because, you know, what we are doing in our podcast is sort of really trying to kind of lay out the specific building blocks of the story. And when you look at the documents, when you look at the records, when you look at what happens, it's clear to see. And we, for months, tried to get an interview with Leonard Leo for our podcast. And eventually they said, okay, we will do an interview, but only if you do not ask him about his financial arrangements or his relationship to Supreme Court justices. And we said no. But then we sent a long list of questions. We sent reporting questions. We sent factual questions, lots and lots of questions. And many of them he answered. And he did not dispute in many cases his influence on the courts and, in fact, you know, confirmed For example, in episode two, we talk about a meeting that Leo arranged with Clarence Thomas at the Supreme Court for a group of donors that had been organized by Paul Singer. Leo didn't say it didn't happen. He said these were thought leaders who he wanted to introduce to the justice. And so we can see it happening. We can see the building blocks of what's happening. Now, what Leo did say a lot to us, and he said it many to many other people, is that I'm just trying to catch up with the left. The left is actually winning, and all we are doing is trying to equalize and get our say. And the left certainly does not right now control the six to three supermajority in the U.S. Supreme Court. When you get down to the lower courts, the state courts, state Supreme Court justices, I do think that people have been waking up on the left. The left has been getting involved, uh, but it's still a fight. For example, you know, Wisconsin, I think, is exhibit A of that. So so just a note to future thought leaders of America, for a low, low sum of money, you too can be uh, an attorney general, a solicitor general, or get a private meeting with uh, justice at the Supreme Court. So it's it's worth every penny, and I would jump on that train. Uh, Andrea Bernstein of ProPublica is co-creator in conjunction with WNYC's On the Media of the new podcast series called We Don't Talk About Leonard. She's going to be with us for Slate Plus to talk about, oh my God, the Donald Trump civil trial in New York this week. Episode two of We Don't Talk About Leonard drop this Friday. Andrea, thank you. Thank you. And that is a wrap for this many-citied episode of Amicus. Thank you so much for listening in. And thank you so much for your letters and your questions. You can always keep in touch at amicus at slate.com or you can find us at facebook.com slash amicus podcast. 
Today's show was produced by Sarah Burningham with thanks to Vic Whitley-Berry for field production for our interview with Senator Warren. We would also like to thank the good folks at Little Rock Public Radio for their help after my microphone broke. Thank you to Daniel Breen and Josie Lenora in particular. Alicia Montgomery is Vice President of Audio at Slate, and Ben Richmond is our Senior Director of Operations. We'll be back soon with another episode of Amicus. Until then, take good care. Thank you.